This episode is brought to you by Big Box Paradox. Hey there, gurus. Are you founding a new religion or a philosophical school? Have you founded it on seven practical steps to happiness or a revolutionary perspective on the human experience? Well, you're wasting your time unless you have that one essential feature. No, I'm not talking about expensive study guides and merch. Uh, No, I'm talking about the one thing no ecstatic or comprehensive experience can do without, a core paradox. And where do Svengali's go to purchase such a paradox? They go to Big Box Paradox, of course. On the other hand, maybe they don't. But rest assured, at the BBP, you'll find exactly what you need to found your spiritual or intellectual cult. Like heaps of rice that don't stop being heaps no matter how many single grains of rice you remove. Or how about these gorgeous, artisanal, giant, unliftable stones, individually crafted by omnipotent beings? If you're a swami or prophet, it's probably predetermined, or eternally predestined, that you'll find yourself shopping in the wide aisles of Big Box Paradox, of your own free will. How will you choose between the massive selection of equally appealing choices at Big Box Paradox? No one really knows, but their customers always do anyway. So, make your way to Big Box Paradox today. Their friendly, helpful staff are waiting to serve you after you traverse an infinite number of halfway points to get there. And thank you, Big Box Paradox, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. This episode is brought to you by the support of generous listeners just like you. You can learn how to be one of them at patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. And thank you, listener patrons, for supporting the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning, the following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Hi, Craig. Good. I, I can't say that. I was going to say good evening again. And I yeah, messed what up are last you? time. <laughs> no, it's, it's what well, we are. We're, we're in the evening of the yeah. Commonwealth. So <laughs> it's after night rise. Mm. But in truth, we have to live outside of time here for everybody. That's true. We are yeah. evergreen. That's right. Um, let's see. Hey, guess what? We got some flash fiction submissions to the mm. Worldcon, Shadowcon flash fiction contest already. Remember, 450 words about Agia's backstory. Yep. Anything yeah. you want. It can be straight, funny, odd, what you actually think. It could be purely hypothetical and unrealistic. Anything that yeah. you that you can come up with, that's what we wanna wanna see what you can what you can do with it. So 450 words is it's harder than it sounds. Like sometimes people think, oh, a shorter story. That's good. And then yeah. you realize that even just to set the stage, you're already at like 700 words. So <laughs> yeah, so it's it's hard to do flash fiction well, but thought it'd be a fun thing. And then speaking of the rest of the con stuff, we're trying to put some things together and want to give everybody like a solid detail and even yeah. schedule if we can. We're trying to get that. The, the big trick is that we still don't know when the wolf panel in the official Worldcon will come out because we're still waiting. Yeah, it might show up right in the middle of our Shadowcon, and oh, that's okay. We, yeah. we can, yeah, we can, we can do that. Just tra- all tromp over there is like a big group of however many of us. Right. Honestly, I was 
thinking too, one nice thing about having our own room and doing it somewhere was that if they are going to have the masks still be required, yeah, <laughs> it'll be good you to can, escape. Come on over <laughs> and we can, you can take a break yep. for a little bit. Yeah. Because I, I am vaxxed, but I, I don't wear the mask I am triple vaxxed. Anymore. Yeah. I know. I'm, I, 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 you know, the, the next stage for me is COVID. That's the, <laughs> that's when I ascend. <laughs> but yeah, so we'll try and get more information out um, as soon as we can. And if you do just want information about Worldcon itself to see if, you know, you're interested in staying in the actual hotel, chicon.org is the C-H-I- con.org is the main website where all the information is and yeah. they're putting the program together but we do know that lots of other people are going to be there and we already know let's see the main guest of honor is Stephen Barnes who I know I've read some of his stories I've never read any novels but I've, I've definitely read some of his stories um Tenenarive Due is there Ada Palmer is going to be there she's going to talk on the the wolf panel i hope i think so mm-hmm. john scalzi i mean i'm just kind of randomly looking here at other names yeah joan gordon's gonna be there and try to be on the panel um mm-hmm. joe haldeman is actually gonna be hanging out so i think patrick no. o'leary said he was gonna be around cool. cool and i mean with joe haldeman i mean not to not to be too dark but you know see him before he dies yeah yeah <laughs> this is yeah. yeah we uh <laughs> sorry about that well no, no i mean we are going to get old. I'm going to see me before I die. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. But I mean, let's see. Oh, Charlie Strauss. He's, he's, I read a ton of his stuff back a while back. I haven't read any of his new things, but a lot of his older stuff, Joe Walton. I mean, yeah. So there's a lot of people who are going to be there. I mean, it is Worldcon, So yeah. there's going to be a lot of good stuff. And I guess it depends on where we actually have the shadow con, but mm-hmm. if it's not in some official room, I don't know that you necessarily have to be a member of Worldcon. Although, you know, it's great if you do, because yeah. then you get to vote on vote on the Hugos, you know, favorite uh, fan cast for the Hugos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> And even though your favorite podcast may not be on the ballot this year, you yeah. never know who might organize a petition or that's ballot, right ballot mm. stuffing. Thing Someone has to nominate, year. right? So, that's right. Yeah. But anyway, take a look. It's fun. Um, it is. Someone did ask the other day, and yes, you, you'll have to, of course, pay for your hotel and the registration fee. But it is just a little bit more than a regular con because you do have to become a member. That's right. Also, yeah, it's not. They they call themselves call them memberships. They're not entrance fees or subscriptions or whatever. Correct. But you do get access to different stuff throughout the year. So that's yeah, like recordings of the the various panels and whatnot, and other con things throughout the year too. So yeah, no, I'm really I'm really excited about this. And so oh, and also, and I discovered this since it's my first World Con that I you know I got a big discount. Very cool. That was pretty sweet. We better make it good if we're if we're advertising and trying to get yeah, people to be here. Yeah, oh, and and I should say, mm-hmm. you know, this would be not probably you could probably swing it because you're just around the corner. But yeah. it, this would not be possible uh, for me without you know the support of all the patrons. So, oh yeah, yeah, because we are we do have a room in the hotel, and depending on how things set up, we might end up using that room. That might be our room. That might be our room for stuff. So in which case, we would be directly paying for the place of the thing. So, but yeah, but that's all from Patreon. Every yeah. bit of it. So thank you to all Patreon folk who have helped out yeah, over, the, all the, over the years even. Or wait, yeah, Patreon. Yeah, we had been, that for two no, years? No, well, it's been, yeah, Almost. it's been maybe a year now. A little okay. more than a year. About a year. Okay. We're closing in on a year and a half. Oh, that's right. Because the, the 15-month sticker. 
Yeah, we that's right. <laughs> yeah, that was the, the struggle. My, my, I should mention my wife does all of the mailing out, and uh, she puts those little stamps on the envelopes. And because she saw me draw the, drawing them on, and said, "This is stupid. <laughs> you can do better than that." <laughs> because and girls do everything better. So, so she mails them all out, and then I I says, "Oh, look at the new fifteen month stickers!" And they really are. They're by Nathan Anderson. They're really amazing. And uh, she uh, she says, 15 months." <laughs> I thought if we got to a year, we would stop sending them out. <laughs> <laughs> no, we have to keep sending them out. <laughs> So thanks to her. Thanks to our patrons. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I guess we should uh, get on with the comments, right? I guess so. We okay, are a content based podcast. We should. Yeah, have we some are. Yeah. Content. Yeah. Well, I, I can't walk around in a low cut browse. So I guess I better do this. <laughs> now we're just going to slowly over time turn it into just you and me chatting about every thing and nothing all at once. <laughs> the, which is basically most podcasts. So, yeah. So we did get a lot of interesting uh, comments on our initial attack on the play. Let's see. On Reddit, Mantis says that while he appreciates my intention to connect the play directly in some way to the story in the novel that we are reading, because after all, the play and the novel are both the Book of the New Sun, he asserts defiantly that the play, the Book of the New Sun, and the book, the Book of the New Sun, not the same book. Mark Mark makes this point, and uh, Mantis does uh, give him credit for some right. of that. Mantis says, there are two versions of the Book of the New Sun. There is Severian's narrative, which is the Conan the Proustian version. Which I adore. <laughs> that I stuck in my head, and that is how I think of this book from now on. Yeah, and, and of which there are two copies that exist, one in the library, one chucked into space. Then there is the lost book of the new sun, the biblical one that, despite being culturally lost, keeps popping up around Severian. Thecla requests one from the library. Uh, yeah, Wolf said that that was uh, the book of the new sun, one of the books that she had requested in Castle of the Otter in his uh, essay, I think it's on books of the new sun essay. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the, co the copy that Talos claims to have read is this other one in Severian's world. Uh, Mantis goes on, a copy of which was likely up at Little Severian's Mountain Cabin. He says it originated in the time of the conciliator when Kanag, a prisoner in the next cell, wrote down what he overheard. Hence, Kanag's Book of the New Sun, to make a distinction from Severian's Kiss and Tell. He, he goes on, with this framing in mind, in a way similar to how James seeks to anchor it in the text, I that is Mantis, have tried to reconstruct Kanag's book, filtering out the vaudeville stuff. I find a mashup of Old Testament, Zoroastrianism, ancient traditions of cyclical destruction and rebirth with modern Darwinian notions about the ascent of man from apes. I think part of the initial fake out for me was the presumed Christian angle, where the Ur text is actually a melange of pre-Christian and post-Christian, and Christianish, but not actually Christian. So, in short, he says he does not think we should expect this book and the Kanag book to match up. A lot of you probably see an issue with this, since you see the Book of the New Sun and Earth of the New Sun as portraying a seamless loop. But remember, 
Michael understands that the first Severian's timeline is being overwritten by our Severian. So there's there's no need or no reason for these stories to be similar, especially since, you know, the Commonwealth Book of the New Sun is just Canog's notes and multiple accretions of time. So uh, Mantis says, the electrifying point where this breaks down is, as mentioned by Mark in the podcast, where the scene of the real flood matches up tightly with the play's version of the flood. So my thinking, Mantis says, goes like this. The vaudeville is light and corny, lulling the audience into mild interest with innuendo and insider intrigue. Then the hammer comes down with pure power, quoting the Ur text directly. And we get a lead into this liminal landscape with the everlasting enigma of the Contessa. Again, like Mark's observation on passing through the thresholds to alter states. And he says, there is that moment in the podcast where James, more or less, said that he was trying to peg the play to the book of Revelation. In in essence, uh, he says, I was uh, successfully lured into thinking within the Christian framework. And he says, that's the baked in bait. (laughs) And Mark (laughs) said, the actual Urtext model is the Old Testament deluge, way back in the middle of the book of Moses, to which... Now, I add the Talos version of the Genesis flood has been stripped down, no Noah, no flood, that it even defies non-Hebrew versions of the flood, Sumerian and Greek. Hmm. So he's laid out his theory, laid out his model. I, I can't go there. I cannot, I cannot give up on an idea that there is some sort of utility in the play. And I think that's probably where I'm diverging from you and Mark. Yeah. And I would say that is the utility. I mean, it seems like to me, like if you want to look for the the really basic fortune cookie version of what the heck is the play about? To me, it's basically saying, hey, guess what? There's going to be a flood. That's what we mean by the new sun. That's what's going to happen. Earth's going to get wiped clean and they're going to be this new race of people like that's that's the the big picture outcome. And since really nowhere else in the four books, do you get that quite laid out clearly? The, the, before you get earth of the new sun, the play is the closest you're going to get to that. So, um, I do feel like giving you a sort of end point for the whole arc of the story. That's pretty useful. I mean, that's, that's pretty utility. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, otherwise I don't you don't really have a wrap up for all the stuff about this talk of the new sun and what Severian means when he's going to a test and all that kind of stuff. So that's the the real punch of the play. And if you're really looking for, yeah, just the super quick version of like, what the hell's a play about? What the heck's a play about? Um it's it's that it tells you that what this is all about is washing the earth clean and starting a new race. Yeah. So that's not good enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so uh, Christopher Taylor, he finds Mandis's take, quote, pretty credible. But he says that he's, quote, always intrigued by Talos's reference to the Book of the New Sun as lost. It leaves it unclear whether Talos is supposed to have actually read the book himself or mm-hmm. whether he is somehow drawing upon folk memories of some kind. Perhaps the rites performed by worshippers. Severian refers to it, Saltus, maybe? 
Of course, the other idea is that Talos is very old, right? He's from mm-hmm. some... I mean, we don't know where Baldander's got the pieces and stuff to make Talos. But he does know about Mary Shelley and, and all. Christopher lays out, says, there is the problem, in reference to the podcast episode, that I don't think there's any way a reader could infer the existence of Kanog's version of the Book of the New Sun without having read Earth of the New Sun. Mm-hmm. And that is, I think, a very credible point. Yep. And I think, I think, and I, I feel like there's a part in Citadel that says this, and I can't remember where it is right now, where, where they do talk about Book of the New Sun is basically like a gospel, uh, that mm-hmm. is, which is different from his. So anyway, his point about like, we don't know how corrupt the versions of the story were or what Talos can remember. But oddly enough, even when we do get the story of Kanag in Earth of the New Sun, it's what he overheard in the next cell, right? Mm-hmm. And he's sort of scribbling notes. So it could be a case where even the original Book of the New Sun that Kanag writes doesn't quite get everything right because he just hears this story once (laughs) and writing it down in whatever he has in his cell. And so by the time he actually gets to put it together, you know, who knows what he's added, what he's done. So, you know, you know, that we, there's all kinds of room in there for that. And I feel like too, with the way that all the talk about the conciliator legends talks about what they remember, what they don't know, what they guess, what some people say and whatnot, that even for, the book of the new sun there's supposed to be all this sort of layers of distance and and not knowing. Yeah. and we even get that too we get wolf saying i've translated this and used the best words that i could but they're not totally accurate <laughs> right so even when he says that even our story is supposedly you know not a hundred percent perfect just like when I, mean, I say horse but i don't mean horse right it's like <laughs> I, I say you know i say tower but i don't mean tower I mean yeah but he's he's convey the, the the word for horse that he's conveying is supposed to be meaningful it's supposed to be descriptive oh yeah, oh, yeah. and it is it's just not absolutely precise like right? i i yeah. get that a lot Maybe half, maybe more, maybe the 80% of people who read this book and love it in a way that, you know, this, like I said, I've said many times, this wasn't my favorite book because mm-hmm. I didn't, I, I felt like it was that kind of a story. So so a lot of people, I'm sure, love this idea of the play as being totally ineffable, to, just a a, a, a creative brains not a brain dump but a brains dump like you just took a shotgun and 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 blew all of the imagination in your head right onto the floor in a bloody mess so they just love that they love that idea and um i don't like that idea <laughs> so i'm not going to interpret it that way i'm going to continue on i'm going to push forward and i will say i don't think we don't have to put all this stuff in but i don't i don't think that's what mark and i are saying like i think the way we're taking it is pretty it's like it it kind of it it does come across there is a way to read it that it's it means something we'll see we'll see we'll see where it goes when you guys get to the end we'll see about that um (laughs) you know listening to you and mark talk about makes me feel kind of like when in that first brown book story with the autark where he walks on and he sees a lady a a rich lady she see he sees a armies and then he goes off with the dog laughing Mm -hmm. and you have all of these wise men who sit around and come up with different meanings to it and 
the the answer I get to that, the point of that is that none of the wise men were really right for the literal meaning, but they may come come up to to many greater truths. And I just don't think I I, I wouldn't have read this book this far uh, in this in the way I have with you if I could settle on a, a reading like that. By golly, if there's a literal meaning to this play, I'm going to find it. And <laughs> if I don't find it, then I'm just going to walk away broken, a broken, broken man. <laughs> and you'll have no one to blame but yourselves. You can always just then say, it's Earth. It's just Earth, is, <laughs> Earth is the literal. It, Come on, it, Jack. It's, just... <laughs> it's the Commonwealth. <laughs> Let's see. Oh, hey, we haven't heard from Goonhans in a while. He says... I believe we are to understand that Dr. Talos did have knowledge of Severian's story, even though he doesn't know it's Severian's story, which is the play. He quotes, being a dramatization, as he claimed, of the certain parts of the lost book of the new son. And so, hey, Goonhans, that's what I'm saying, man. And you know, he quotes uh, several little snippets. He, I don't think he really comes to a conclusion. He says, Earth of the New Sun contains parts where Severian was held captive next to a prisoner who writes down the Severian story. It's, it's not the exact same text as the one we're reading. Severian comments on the veracity of the play in Earth of the New Sun. He says, I thought of Dr. Talos's play in which the ground shakes. And Jahi says, the end of Earth, you fool. Go ahead and spear her. It's the end of you anyway. Or or another place, how little I had talked with him upon the world of Yesid. The scene with the prophet and the autarch is recapitulated twice in the story. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah, we'll come. We'll get to If that I part. feel like I've busted this play, and I, I do think that there are certain things that I finally really, really, really understand what the heck is going on in the, particularly in the first volume and actually in the second volume that we've come through so far. But if I crack this play, I will know it and you will know it too. So. <laughs> yeah. That talked about the talk between the, the prophet and whatnot. That's something that we'll get to a little bit more. Yeah. Once we get to yeah. the later parts of the later part of the play. Right. Uh, let's see, on Facebook, Gary Owens. Gary, Indiana. What a wonderful name. Says, I interpret the play as a distorted myth akin to those found in the Brown Book. It's based on the lost book of the new sun, but what version from what universe? Wouldn't it be the document based on Imar's conversations with Severian while he was imprisoned by the Proto-Guild after he returned from Yesid? Yeah, um, uh, maybe, maybe, unless it is from another universe. I mean, that, that's the thing. It it could be different. It could be different. It could be... Uh, I just don't know. I don't know. I, we'll spend a lot of time crafting this play, and I want to know why. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, Gary thinks, uh, quote, I think the play gives us a 30,000 foot of view of what's going on in the book mm -hmm. of the New Sun without making a direct analogy to specific characters or plot points of Severian's personal subjective journey. It may be an al analogy of both the first and second Severian's exploits. Like the story of Imar sitting under a tree, the point isn't what type of dog he got up and followed, or even that he specifically followed a dog, but instead it's the extrapolation of the type of things he did follow. That would okay. be, if that was on Reddit, I would upvote that. 
<laughs> I can't, can't remember if that was Reddit or Facebook. Or- that was Facebook. That was Facebook. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Like. <laughs> like. Um, Jeremiah M. Oh, Jeremiah, tell me what have you done? On YouTube. It says, wow, great discussion, guys. My take is that the text means multiple things at the same time. And it's supported in how the Asian language works. I think that this is critical to understanding Wolf's work, especially with all the religious overtones. I also think some of the text is intentionally meant to be mysterious and not completely understandable, like many descriptions of religious experiences. Yeah. Yeah. And like we said about the Brown books, like there are there are parts that are. Yeah, right. It's it's weird because it's corrupt history and misunderstanding or whatever. Yeah, so. yeah. I, I do not have a lot of allies out here on these among the commenters. I'm... <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a problem. You called them commenters. That's why. <laughs> oh, that's probably the problem, right? <laughs> <laughs> what favors have they done me lately? So, right. <laughs> so yeah. So there's the um, ideas and theories uh, regarding the play. I got this week into a discussion on Reddit, whether there are aliens, per se, in the Book of the mm-hmm. New Sun. That is to say, you know, evolutionarily independent non-humans mm-hmm. who are yep. sentient. And I uh, personally presume that there are none. Uh, we we know the heroes are a branch of humanity. Uh, Jonas is a product of human civilization. There's a question of whether the Alzabo is sentient. That came up. and. Mm-hmm. Severian presumes it's not, and that it's just merely wears the minds of its victims like a cloak. But, you know, Severian does cut a deal with the camouflage mind on the Alzabos. So I think that's probably questionable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the Alzabo is definitely the, I mean, it is alien life, right? We do know right. that it's some kind of alien life. And the word cacogen never gets directly defined and even mm-hmm. the way they talk about it i mean we talked the whole time first about how exultants might be you know who knows they're they're taller because they got their ancestors mm-hmm. got to live off world somewhere and you know a different but they gravity. are humans I mean, they're, but they're, they're yeah. humans and then but then the cacogens seems like he's referring to aliens but then we also have we know that there are the weird hybrid things that you know, or like the soldiers in the wall. We know that they're the man apes. Oh, that's true. You know, we don't really know whether the soldiers are uplifted animals or kind of. Yeah. yeah I, think, I think they talk about them being. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. We but they are, but once again, they are products of human civilization. Exactly. Yeah. So about actual aliens. Yeah. Because the trick is that the Hyros are the high, all the levels, Hyros, higher grammats, high reduals, they're all part of humanity from the future or from another iteration come back to yeah in this this thing to try and get to their own evolution right um yeah which which is weird because then it means that in some ways adkiel is human right he's a he's yeah. a descendant of humans but yeah so we don't we don't know are there other races i mean i tend to think that since the alzabo is there we're told that we're suggested that there might be other mm-hmm. i mean it's certainly and, it's, it's it's never emphatically Refuted. Denied, and yeah. in fact, here's something interesting. Oh, Redditor Satan from Space <laughs> uh, pointed <laughs> out that the Alzabo is one of the um, uh, people who fight in Severian's trial on Earth of the New Sun. Ooh, I'd forgotten that. Which, that's a pretty good argument. Yeah. Um, yeah. Also, you know, there's a question of whether the Avern itself is sentient or just malevolent in some brutish mm-hmm. way, right? 
Yeah. And, and of course, we don't know enough about the Megatherians to know whether they are, you know, aliens yeah. or not. Although I guess if if it's in a super simple reading, I guess they would be the aliens, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, I'm like, duh, I guess the Megatherians could be that. But who knows if they're just giant humans like Baldanders, maybe they are just a different evolutionary yeah. path. I don't know. Right. I don't know. You keep the cooks and charlatans and business babe. We've already mentioned how supporting us on Patreon is literally making Shadow of the Con possible. So this is the part where I gush and gush and gush about how grateful we are for everyone who's helping us out over there. Patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. And links are in the show notes. You can sign up to get access to everything over there. All the Borges episodes, which more need to be coming soon. Extra content, all that for $2 at the journeyman level. Go up to $5 per month and you'll get little bonus treats throughout the year like stickers, a personalized musical tag for when you leave comments on the show and get access to the Slack channel for master patrons. Patreon also now lets you pay for a full year up front. That's 60 bucks in one go. And one new master actually did that this last time, which is very cool, very generous. So all just new master patrons this week. First, we have Travis McDevitt-Gales. Hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. Hey, Travis. Can I have this dance? Jeremiah M. And AJ, who went from journeyman to master. So a hearty congratulations on your elevation. There's a special place in my heart and oubliette for all of you, which now that I say that out loud sounds problematic. So you know what I mean. Thank you all so much. But now let's get to the goods. Eschatology in Genesis part two. Yeah, there's no chapter. Our, our part two, I should say. Not like second act or anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not in the text, but we have to cut it off someplace. Arbitrary and... points of <laughs> Well, you know, but we, we do need to move forward. And there's no point in me trying to do a recap of right. what happened before. Just hopefully a lot of people will have waited until after this whole thing came out. And then they're just going to listen to it in one go. Yeah. Thing. yeah. This is where I'm going to give my one disclaimer that, uh, you know, James was kind enough to provide some notes to where we're going. So I kind of know what he's going to say, and he doesn't mm-hmm. know what I'm going to say. So uh, <laughs> I, I just, I just want to say here that I'm going to try to, you know, let him speak, but there are, there are yeah. many things that we disagree with, but that doesn't mean that we're not friends. No, 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 no. And I want you to remember that when Mark turns up dead. So. And, and we start arguing and screaming and God damn it. <laughs> but, you know, um, I, I, I have come to terms with the fact that I'm going to be very uncomfortable through this entire <laughs> process. And I don't think that's no, Mark. No, I think th- that's- there's whole thing. First of all, I'm not happy feeling that I don't have a grip on something. Right. Uh, which is really my whole point is that there's a lot of people, they enjoy going through Wolf and just kind of like a feeling like it's a dream. And maybe to some extent, you know, Wolf readers are divided 
between people who are trying to figure out the the plot yes. and what's going on underneath and the people who don't care and the people who don't care find people like me very tiresome yes and i think me too honestly <laughs> like i mean land across you know that's one of my least favorite wolf because i feel like i i have so many gaps that i just can't explain yeah. or i can't deal with and so i'm like I can't grab onto it. I can't hold yeah. onto it. And so I'm like, oh, I don't like it. But once I figure it out, I might love it. Well, after after I get through it and I explain it to you, then you'll feel much better. Okay. Um, yes. Meanwhile, <laughs> this is my land of cross. All right. So let's let, let's move forward. Okay. On stage is Baldanders as Nod, Severian as Messia, the Zoroastrian Adam, at Dorcas as Messiana, the Zoroastrian Eve, Talos as the archangel Gabriel has just left the stage. Uh, so Messiana says, I'll start the fire and you had better begin to build us a house. It must rain often here. See how green the grass is. And of course, this is referential to everything that's going on. And then Messia examines Nod and Messia says, why, it's only a statue. No wonder he wasn't afraid of it. So we've spent some time speculating over those statues in the House Absolute. And so does this suggest that those statues, at least some of them, are the presences of Megatherians? I mean, if I'm interpreting Nod correctly, then this would add a whole new angle to the Megatherians, which frankly have enough shadowy sides already. So, okay, I want to talk about that a little bit more. Um, mm -hmm. So Nod, as I said in the previous episode, there's kind of an ambiguity about whether he's Baldanders, the Megatherians, the, the Undines, exactly. What 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 is Nod here? And I feel like if he's a statue, right, we have to deal with the fact that the statues are meant to be imitations of the Hieros. What man is striving towards, what the Hierogrammates are, what the, uh, you know, the Hierogules or the Hierogules, what they actually serve there. So I think that this is about the future of humanity and then as it's memorialized. So we're going to come back to that statue as a memorial of what humanity aspires to and what it is. So I don't necessarily think that it's the Megatherians, but Baldanders and his imitation of the Megatherians is also suggestive of that, I think. Yeah, well, you've just basically a little agreed that Nod is Baldanders, Megatherians, Undines, basically the, that's an entire class of beings in this novel. In a lot of ways, it's the non-humans, right? It's the things that are, yes. are both good versions and bad versions of kind of what humanity could become. But the statues are also an imitation of what humanity is as well. So it's mm -hmm. like, it's kind of this weird, it's like this unified thing almost. And it's a, symbol, right? I mean, it's yeah. a piece of art. It's a kind of mm -hmm. symbol. And so that's one reason I think there's there's a whole lot of irony when Messia says, no wonder he wasn't afraid of it. Like, it's just a statue. But, um, <laughs> but it's, yeah. it's a thing that holds all kinds of both warnings, but also promise and, and you know, all these things that are going on. So I feel like that Messia's action there is kind of like not understanding the symbol, kind of very much like in that first section where Severian's like, I didn't know what it was at first. I thought it was just a coin. I didn't really know what it represented. Mm -hmm. And it comes to represent so much more that it's almost kind of like the same thing. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's just move on. <laughs> Mr. Vestiana says, it might come to life. I heard something once about raising sons from stones. Okay. So this is a reference to a statement by John the Baptist. He was the fire and brimstone herald of the coming of Jesus as Messiah. And he, you know, as the fire and brimstone 
preacher, he went at his, his listeners in Judea saying, do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. So here we have a quote from a forerunner of Christ in the mouth of the Zoroastrian Eve. Uh, frankly, I'm not positive what this means. If Meshia had said it, I would have declared this as a further confirmation of my theory that the character Meshia in this play is the first Severian, the student from the tale of the student and his son. But in the mouth of Eve, the, the first woman, I, I confess, I just don't know. So what we should focus on here is that it's about Abraham. Like, let's not worry about it's the forerunner of Christ. It's about Abraham and his sterility right? So he's an old man. He's in his senescence almost. And he is gifted with offspring somehow miraculously. And that's the theme that we have to work with here. He's going to raise up sons from the stones. Um, and so this is about the future of humanity, right? Humanity is dying. It's, it's dying with this, with this dark sun here. And yet something is going to happen that will allow it to survive. So I think that's what this is about. It's about the continuation, whether those sons be, you know, uh, mixed somehow with the megatherians or whether those sons be, uh, something like the Hyros. It's, it's, they're raised up somehow from the stones that were otherwise seen as barren. So I think Abraham is the important part there. No. There's also the reference to Jonas's story about the woman who came with the stones, right? That she had to throw yes. into the, the water, which again, we don't know if that's actual history or, or, you know, a weird version of Jack and the Beanstalk. Or what. <laughs> and some people see it as the, the, uh, black hole in the sun almost right. and others is the growth of the megatherians like they're planted right. there and so there's a lot of different ways you can take that yeah out. yeah so but if we took that as you know she somehow gave the seeds or whatever of the megatherians that she threw in the water and then they grew into the creatures then there's some still connection here that this could be a weird illusion to that um i don't like that as much just because i feel like yeah mark i'm with more with you that talking about you know, raising sons from stones and, and continuation of lines is more appropriate in the whole context of what we're talking about here in the play. Yeah, I think that's actually what this whole thing is about. And, yeah. and, and the sexuality is tied into it too. So wait a minute. So I would think that raising sons from, from stones would be a mark of sterility asexual reproduction. No, no, no. And this is coming back to hybridization and all that stuff and the actual future of the green man. But see, Jahi wants to sexually copulate. Uh, the Contessa wants to sexually copulate, but they don't understand the nature of humanity afterwards. It's not going to be sexual. It's going to be something else, uh, which is basically my scheme also for short sun as well. So I feel like raising sons from stone is about that green man. He's almost like a growth more naturally, but there's still sex that's tied into all of this, even the gestation of the of the white fountain that, that Severian is going to talk about with the Feta in Earth of the New Sun. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I think the the green man is important and he is like a son who's risen up from a stone rather than through copulation. Yeah. Or you could say he's grown from a bean, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, well, there is that, that conversation where uh, Severian says, uh, oh, did you evolve from a plant? And he says, oh, that's ridiculous. Right. You know, the idea that you would have humans that have come from plants. So, well, you know, I've seen people, you know, statues carved from stone. Yes. So, yes, that was a cool line. Yeah. All right. So yes, let's go on. Um, who's who's playing Meshia here? I'll yeah. keep being Meshia. I'll stick with it. So, And I'll be Meshia. Okay. Meshia. Once 
where you were only born just now, yesterday, I think. Yesterday? I don't remember it. I'm such a child, Meshia. I don't remember anything until I walked out into the light and saw you talking to a sunbeam. That wasn't a sunbeam. It was, well, to tell the truth, I haven't thought of a name for what it was yet. I fell in love with you then. So uh, remember that Dorcas is playing uh, Meshiana, so it is natural to see all the parallels between Meshiana and Dorcas. And I'm troubled by this. I always have been. The associations don't take us anywhere for me. The, the rest of the scene after this doesn't really match our Severian's life. And again, I, I don't think this is probably about our Severian, but, you know, I'm just going to go on. Severian met Dorcas, and she's doing the opposite of talking to a sunbeam. She's shivering in the cold, wintry air of the Garden of Sleep. And it's true that she could be thought of as having been born yesterday, and she has knowledge, but she doesn't know where it comes from. But she did not fall in love with Severian after talking to a sunbeam, unless that sunbeam is Asia. Okay, hold on one second. You're saying she didn't fall in love with Severian after talking to a sunbeam. And I think that we should probably look both backwards and forwards for this, like kind of parallel in here as kind of a syncretic event. But she did fall in love with Severian after talking to a sunbeam if he's the personification of the new sun. If he is, in fact, the sun and you see him as the new sun instead of Meshia, the, the sun that will be or the future of humanity there that's going to spring, uh, not necessarily from him, but from those mind wipe sailors, for example, in Earth. So, like, we need to look at this syncretically, I think. Eve talking to God or, or Adam talking to God and then the increate as the new sun. Um, the white fountain as Severian or the new sun are even kind of ensconced with the increate himself. So there's a lot of, I think, collapsing of personalities and identities in here. But the sunbeam is a symbol of either the divine being or Severian himself or the white fountain. Like it's one of those. Well, no, no, yeah. no, no, no. Okay. So if it's Severian himself, then Meshia, is uh, Meshia has, has met encountered her while she's talking to the Severian. Now, if the sunbeam is the first Severian who has resurrected well, see, her, I don't then think I'm going to be, I'll fall in line with that one. I don't think this has anything to do with the first Severian. This, and this could be the future as well saying, hey, I fell in love with you when I saw you under the light of the new sun or something like that. You know, like this is, this is the future that we're going to engender together. So I see this far more symbolically uh, and not necessarily just an event, but if it is an event, then, uh, you know, those two, the male and female sailors are dropped off by the Herodules at the end, uh, and they're going to greet the new son as well. So I think that's their communion with God in a way, rather than something that's so like, is this the scene where Dorcas met Severian? I don't think it's that, really. I think it's more grand and a little bit more uh, syncretic and synthesized. That's a myth. No. It's turning a lot of the stuff, like the backstory, into a myth, it seems like to me, and sort of borrowing from other myths to do that. But, but it also makes sense that if we're just coming here about the idea of of life coming, suns coming from stones, then we've also got a real quick moment here where you're reminding us, first of all, okay, there was Adam who wasn't born of a woman, right? He was created apparently by this sunbeam, right? That's the first thing that the sun uh -huh. gave life, which is similar to something about how the green man ultimately yes. is going to do and, that. And let's say, let there be light. Yeah. And then you have Meshian who shows up and she's kind of going to be something how there's there's going to be a new kind of generation that can come from people. But it's still 
devolves from the sunbeam. And that's part of the reason why, why Meshi is like, uh, I don't know what I should call it really. Cause it's not just the sun. Like it, it is a sunbeam, but it's, it, I don't know what I should call it yet. Cause it's something bigger than that and more complicated. Yeah. At least that's, that's kind of what I feel is and I, I going on here. Yeah. Well, the, okay. So later, uh, um, Meshiana is going to say that the sunbeam is one of the autark servants, which if I was going to try and figure out a, some sort of metaphorical reference to that, then that would suggest that it's uh, like a Haradjul or a, like an angel, a servant of God. Um, but the other thing is that it's not like we don't have a lot of references to sunbeams in this book so far. Uh, when Severian goes to visit Agia and Agulus in, in his cell, uh, they have sunbeams uh, or a sunbeam on both of them. When Thea comes out to see Jonas and Severian, there's a sunbeam on her. Once again, I see a lot. It, this does seem like a, dr a fever dream that someone has after a very busy day. So I think that sunbeam can be, you know, again, it's being many things at once. And it is possible that, yeah, I mean, the Hyroduels in some ways work like a sunbeam. Like, I mean, they're a way that's turning humanity into something else, right? They're helping it generate into something else. I mean, so it's, there's metaphorically, it's still there. I think it's important, though, to see that they're, they're, that Severian is distinct from the Hieros and his power. And they say, hey, you're the epitome of your race. Didn't occur to you, you could be more powerful than us and do things we couldn't do, even though mm -hmm. we're technically above you. And so like he he is that white fountain in a way. Mm -hmm. You know, you guys have talked a whole lot about what the claw does, but you know, the claw is just a symbol of the white fountain as well. Like the real claw, the conciliator is the white fountain approaching. And so that yeah. is the sunbeam. That's going to be the new sun really that engenders it. So, yeah. um, you know, that's, I, I think it's a mistake to say it's just the high rows. If right. the white fountain exists as a thing. Yeah. Well, let's move forward. Okay. So enter the autark for the first time. All right, so the Autarch says, uh, who are you? Meshia, as far as that goes, who are you? The owner of this garden. I remember uh, it's Talos playing the Autarch here. Meshia bows and Meshian curtsies, though she has no skirt to hold. Meshia <laughs> says, we were speaking to one of your servants only a moment ago. Now that I come to think of it, I'm astonished at how much he resembled your august self, save that he was... Uh, uh, younger? In appearance, at least. Okay, yeah. So, so when she says, when she calls it one of his servants, it's not the sunbeam you should talk about. She's talking about Gabriel himself. Although, what does that mean? Why would Gabriel appear younger than the Autark? What is the... Well, he's immortal. He doesn't age. Just that the Autark is subject to the... the, the time and, and yeah. temporal, you know, age and all that stuff. And so even though Talos is playing both of them, Gabriel is immortal and perfect as when he was created and the Autark is starting to show his age. Age. Yeah. That's kind of what I think. The Autark here is not actually like, you know, first of all, Meshia misunderstands. He thinks the Autark is God or something like that for a second. Um, and so that's why he thinks that Gabriel's his servant, but it's not, you know, and so the Autark here is we're not quite sure what's going on, but yeah, when he, that Gabriel, just like Zach can, can, you know, grow and age and start over again and be perfect and whatnot. He's not subject to time in the same way that humans are. Yeah. Okay. Well, the, the Autark is being confabulated here with the Increate, right? Yes, because so many, so many people on earth 
confuse him with that, right? They say, yep. hey, oh, he's he's like God to us, but really he's he's not. He takes on the semblance of God, like he has all this authority, and he's trying also to serve God. So I think this also, this confusion with God, is easily mapped to Severian's first encounter with him where he realized he was the autarch, where, you know, he came upon him as a servant of Vodalus in the uh, House Absolute there, through that, that kind of room, you know, mm-hmm. green room, I think, when he stepped back into it. And he shows him, right, that um, that book that has Zadkiel in it. So he's trying to show him divine revelation, and then he bleeds from the forehead, and so many things go on there. And I think even the book is marked with an eclipse, right? There's so many symbolic things that start with that. So he's he's like Severian uh, is experiencing a vision of maybe prophecy, right? The Vatic fountain, everything mm-hmm. that means prophecy. But is it necessarily from God, or is it just from the autarch? And they're kind of conflated and confused from his perspective. So I think this is going back to the autarch speaking divine truth or attempting to yeah mm. and the same kind of confusion happens at the end of shadow when malrubius comes and gives him that quiz about type of government right which is also kind of about faith right so it's yeah. it's like what's your relationship to the leader whereas you know severian seems at some point like he's just asking a sort of governmental question but really what he's trying to do is yeah it's asking about faith what what is faith how does how does faith work and I also think it's important that the highest form of government, as I read that, not ironically, right, sincerely, is that there is no line of secession. And the autarch's line, right, he's going to be castrated when he attempts to bring the new son. There is no line of secession for, for him. It's something new that arises, you know. So I think mm-hmm. that even that is kind of more complex than it first appears to be mm-hmm. in talking about uh, the ruler and his relationship to what's coming in the future. Yeah. So in terms of the play, at least, the way I see this is this is showing that Meshia is still human and is fallible and knows that something bigger is going on, but he doesn't know quite how to put it together because he thinks that the autarch is human, just like Severian's going to go through all kinds of stuff, not really realizing what his role is and that becoming autarch is not just becoming leader of the Commonwealth, but actually puts him on a, on a bigger scale, too. I think I actually I have a uh, a solution for why they, they, the suggestion is that uh, Gabriel looks like the autarch and is yet younger. Um, I think the resolution offered by the autarch is that Gabriel, whom they spoke to, is the autarch's son, and if we're still confabulating the autarch with the increate, then. It, that could make sense because in various places in the Hebrew Bible, angels are referred to as the sons of God. And in the book of Job, and also uh, by common interpretation in that uh, passage about the Nephilim, all this could suggest a much stronger allusion to the Nephilim reading than is often interpreted. For example, could the Nephilim be the results of manipulations by heretical outlaw Hieros, fallen angels, so to speak. And I'm just trying to make, you know, this play makes sense, people. I, I, I'm not just spinning tales. Um, so listeners will rightly ask, well, what if they were? How would that change anything? And only in one way, potentially, as far as I know, we might understand what Wolf the author is communicating to us in this play. <laughs> and rather than, I, I really feel like we're just, you know, looking at the intestines of birds here and trying to divine the future at, at this. Uh, but I mean, theoretically, why does it matter if the megatherians are real entities or not? It, it's not like Severian ever encounters one. 
well, except in the case of the Man Apes Cavern. Well, I think actually, you know, that that's that walking tower that we see in Citadel. But, you know, there's that thing that comes down the river at the end of Citadel that gives out commands. It's like a giant ship like the Nevis. Uh-huh. So I think that we almost see the Megatherians in Citadel. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't necessarily think that they need to show up any more than God needs to show up to be real in this text and to have real motivations. Well, all right, then. Let's move forward. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so the Autark says, once again, they're, they're suggesting here that he looked, that Gabriel looked like him and yet was younger, so therefore his, his son, which is a kind of a suggestion that's going to come up with Severian and Owen at the end of uh, Citadel of the Autark. But anyway, he says, the Autark says, well, it is inevitable, I suppose, not that I am attempting to excuse it now, but I was young, and though it would be better to confine oneself to women nearer one's own station, still there are times, as you would understand, young man, if you had ever been in my position, when a little maid or country girl who can be wooed with a handful of silver or a bolt of velvet will not demand at the most inconvenient moment, the death of some rival or an ambassadorship for her husband. Well, when a little person like that becomes a most enticing proposition. Okay, so the Autark gives a long discourse about how sons can be born of trivial affairs with women of lesser class. A couple of issues for me. We've gone deep into the side issue of the Autark and sons, or the Increate and Sons. None of this has anything to do with Severian because Severian is born to Owen, a nobody, and Catherine, who is also a nobody, no matter what you believe. Um, so there's no issue of class here. But you know that's an issue for someone like me who thinks that this play is intended to be skewed, metaphorical, literal history. So I do think that it is metaphorical, literal history, but here where the autarch is saying, you know what, you could have sex with this maid or that one over there, even though they're not worthy. He's thinking about the future and his progeny, right? And that's the theme that's running through this. What is the future going to be? Is it going to be baseborn? Is it going to be the, the people of the do-nothing future, as Earth calls it, where they don't actually transcend and you just, you know, this is the autarch's son. He's a nobody. Or is he going to strive for greatness and risk cutting off his life? line so that humanity can move on to the next stage. And that's what he actually does. So the idea that the Autark can dally and stay there and have sons of his own, I think is related to what Severian has a choice to do. He could stay there and have children of his own. Instead, he tries to go to the stars. He risks getting castrated and cut off and dying even. And he gives birth to that future that allows humanity to transform into the high rows, really, or something so like the high rows that there's no difference there. So I think this is about children, yes, but um, it's not about, well, them being nobodies, really, but the choices that they're going to make and who is going to procreate and determine the future of humanity. Well, yeah, but the yeah. old but the old autark has no sons, and if Severian has children, then it is the, the White's Fountain, which he had with a feta. You're thinking too literally and not as a larger symbol of humanity. The autarchy. I will think literally. I there, I cannot think too literally. Yeah, I think you'll <laughs> I think you're probably like I said, it's a myth. So I think if you keep thinking this all back 
is really just retelling Severian's life, then yeah, then lots of things are just not going to make sense. But this but, is a long passage. This is not a, a trivial aside here. The, no, he's but it makes sense. into detail about this, and I can't fit it in. And, and the future of humanity isn't a trivial aside. You know, this is thematic, most important. Thing. <laughs> but it's also funny because it's it's sort of like a, it sounds like it's kind of undercutting. Like, oh, here's a here's a noble who's talking about, oh yeah, I want to have this little tryst with with, you know, a nobody, whereas really what he's saying is there's a choice between giving rise to an entire new humanity or, you know, another human who any another, you know, just having your own sons and having them inherit them, even if they are the greatest born exultants in the world, they're still just trivial compared to, you know, what the autark could do. I mean, a lot of this stuff is kind of, there's a jokey side to it too, where they're talking about super deep, important things and then, but doing it in the context that seems like it's in a funny soap operation. Yeah, I, I totally agree, right? Yeah. The, the uh, importance is, is taken yeah. away with the, the jokiness of Talos even is funny when he talks about everything. Yeah, <laughs> so that to me makes yeah. this whole thing very much about like how it's comparing even something noble, like like the Autark trying to have succession of the greatest people in the world is in the context of the larger possibility that he has, might as well just be, having a yep. fling with the shower yeah, exactly. with the with exactly the it's perfect yeah well it, but so does this passage suggest an actual error no no it's just any other human error versus a new race and and you know uh it, like i say he is going to be castrated so the, the whole point of that discussion you know with malrubius as well is that the autarch's line cannot continue and and the herodules make a big deal about this he would get in the way of progress it has to be cut off the old line has to be cut off and this is about humanity as well it can't survive in the same way the, the future is not a place for us it's a place for what will come from us that is greater uh, guys, I'm very unhappy. I, I would be unhappy too if I were left behind in that way. Sorry, James. Your, your old news. Yesterday's garbage. <laughs> I, I, the trouble is, I don't have a. I don't have an alternate plan. But I am really, really dissatisfied with y'all's. It's not going to get better, and I'm going to try to not whine about it. But I'm just pointing out. I, I'm not happy with your solution, but. I'm not in a position to offer a better. Well, I think you have to think too, like where does this stand in the context of the whole story that, like you said, it comes right in the middle, right? Like in the middle of the original plan. And Mm -hmm. so what is it doing? It's telling us the real myth behind everything that's, that's going on. And it's doing it in a way that, that there's a long history of allegorical plays like this. I mean, especially in the, the kind of, period that this is going on where it's kind of like the same as a morality play like morality plays all the time would retell the story of jesus in these sort of weird funny sort of apparently even like seeming like they're sort of um scandalous in a certain sense whereas what they're really doing is it's a pageant that is telling you the truth about your eternal soul um and so to have this like right in the middle and to do this thing of we're gonna have the real story of everything that's there, but told sometimes in a jokey way, sometimes in ways that seems like they're connected to historical biblical stuff, sometimes it in ways that that might reflect actual little things that are going on in the story. That's beautiful. I mean, that's a perfect <laughs> way to, to stick it right there in the middle. And yeah, it challenges you to read in a bunch of ways at once. But Wolf was very aware of plenty of things that that worked like this i mean 
this is smack in the middle of Shakespeare. This is how the play in the middle of Hamlet works is it exposes some of the truth without being literally true. It, it tells you what's really going on and, and it makes everybody uncomfortable. Well, yeah. Well, that's a, that's a very good example though, in, in that there is a king in, in Hamlet's play. There is a king and at in Hamlet's play, there is a conspiracy and yeah, Hamlet's not play, every I mean, detail, but, but James, well, in, this one, there's not gonna, <laughs> in this case, I honestly don't think Wolf is working that way at all. There may be little moments that suggest things like that, but at the point he's doing here, he's not just trying to say, here's a little bit more information about Severian. Well, if it's a, wait a minute, wait, if it's not, a, if, if it's not about Severian, it's then about what is the point? What is the point of having Severian play? It's in about, this play? That's exactly it. It's the point of having, of showing what Severian's role is in a much larger story, but it's not just then going to say, and here's who Severian's dad is. And here's who, you know, it's, if it was just about Severian, it doesn't really reveal very much. But what it does is it reveals the entire context in which Severian's story happens. And it does it elusively. It does it strangely. Um, but that's the point, because it's not supposed to be, it's not transparent. <laughs> it is specifically <laughs> layered behind symbols. Which, as we've been talking about, can be moved in different ways. So, yeah. Well, you've, you've said a mouthful there. Yeah, You do have to to let the things work in different ways at different times. You, you got to go for each sort of the context of each moment, which does require you to be pretty flexible. Wow. I mean, I can't get away from the idea that the purpose of this play is trying to provoke some sort of memory in Severian, something that he can key off of later when it happens, that this is actually communicating something to Severian. And I'm not convinced that y'all's interpretation would actually do that, with even within some imagination with, within this play. I mean, I'm sure that someone has at some time suggested that this scene in this play means that Severian is actually the Autark's son or Typhon's clone or Typhon's son. I, I don't really know. If it does do that, then it presents a, a complicated problem. And if it doesn't present a problem, then it's, it's a weakness if you think this play is a kind of key to something. If this play, this longest of all chapters in this book is not a key to something, then, well, it's the weakest, most pointless chapter in this book. See, and I do think it's the key to something. And I do think structurally, we should recognize that this is happening after the end of the novel. You know, Wolf wasn't going to write Earth of the New Sun, so he gave us an ending. We know the new sun is going to come here, right? He's poised to come. It gives us the motivations of the Megatherians. It gives us the breeding scheme of the Hyros to some degree as well a little bit later. So I do think it's the key to everything in the backdrop. It's just not obvious until you really start to recognize, hey, this is, okay, you say it's not literal, but some of these scenes are going to happen in Earth of the New Sun. Like, like in a almost, vague way. In a no, vague line for line. Way. He says, this is the scene. He actually says in Earth, this is the exact spot where I enacted this scene of the play. Like he says that when he when he comes there, like he says, mm -hmm. I'm reenacting it. And he says, Baldanders is playing himself again as Nod. 
uh, you know, so like he recognizes that the play is it's not vague. It's actually literal, which I think is so funny that you resist that when you're looking for literal things and then they're there and you're like, I don't see it. No, <laughs> I, fe- I yeah, I, I feel like in, in those scenes, I'm, I'm somewhat being had because the <laughs> scenes are the scenes are so incredibly trivial. They don't they they come off as something that I, you know, I'm, I can put this right in there uh, from the play. And I, because it, it, it doesn't, there's nothing plot wise that keys on these scenes that we're talking. I think about. there is though, including knowing what Juturna was up to, what the Megatherians want. There's so much that we learn about them. They don't want the eradication of humanity. At the end of earth, we learn, Hey, that he wanted to catch Catadon and cast out his canation, which means catch the beast of humanity and take away his free will. Right. They wanted a vassal servant system, more or less. But the breeding as well. Right. Jahi's mission, which we're going to get to later. Uh, actually, I'm going to stop there. We'll come back to that. OK, but, well, we are coming up to Jahi. Yeah, so. yeah exactly. Perfect. Yeah. And I do think it's a key, too. I think it's just it's a key to the myth of the whole the whole arc of the whole thing. As such, it works. But I mean, we're, we're in a book, remember, where as we talked about at the very beginning where symbols make us and symbols make us in ways we're not always aware of. And so the fact that there are symbols here that can be interpreted in multiple ways and multiple times and multiple contexts, that's precisely what he says about symbols is that you're not always aware of how they're working on you. And so you don't need to be, and you don't need to be like, it's, it's even if the play happens and it goes completely over Severian's head, once I think you kind of see how it traces out, the whole arc of what the new son is supposed to be and whatnot. Well, you see, yeah, he's playing out that his role in, in the thing. It's, it's exactly kind of what he announces from the whole symbol passage. Hmm. Well, we shall see. So, okay. So we're on to Jahi yeah. now. So while the autark has been speaking, Jahi has been creeping up behind Meshia. Now she lays a hand on his shoulder. How do we pronounce that too, by the way? I've ah, seen- Jahi, Jahi, Jahi. Uh, Jahai, Jah, Jahika. Yeah. This woman is the wife and daughter of the Zoroastrian. Well, you know, I'll call him their Satan, but that's not really an accurate description based on Zoroastrian or Christian theology. She's also the queen of hell. Uh, She's the demon of sexual promiscuity. Her name popularly, roughly, translates to the whore and she's the demon responsible for women having their periods she kills with a look so sort of a medusa character i i say the name popularly translates to the whore but it seems to have originally meant just a woman particularly in the sense of a woman who is flawed in some way either barren or being immoral such as you know like an adulteress without her husband realizing that his children are are not his own i can also include a woman who dresses immorally but in zoroastrianism it always carries the sense of a witch it's not clear how far to delve into the lore, but you know, I, I can't really say how much of this was intended by Wolf. I, I have not, however, found a reference to Jahi having venomous fangs. This Jahi is presented as a figure of the serpent in the Garden of Eden. So also, though, you know, you have Lilith in some uh, cosmological views of, of Christianity, like Adam's first wife, you know, mm-hmm. said, I'm not going to necessarily obey to you, obey everything that you say. And so, like, there's a conflation sometimes with the Lamai and all that stuff uh, that, that is serpentine 
a little bit. But yes, there's a, there's a conflation of, of serpentine imagery for sure in this because she is a temptation, right? Like even that thing, who's behind you? You know, look, there's someone following you behind there. And, and Jahi is there to tempt Meshia into something. And yet, right, it's, it's kind of a, a complicated relationship as we'll see a little bit later. Yeah. Now, obviously, Agia is called a prostitute by Hildegren, and she is, you know, sexually lascivious with Severian. She dresses immorally. She says she sells her body to procure Hathor's loyalty. As I pointed out, there are, you know, a lot of associations between Agia and the witches. As I'm still unsatisfied, not because of, you know, the association doesn't make sense. It does but because I just don't know what to do with it. I, I'm trying to connect Igea with, or, or anyone else, you know, to this character. I worry that Wolf is playing a switcheroo on me, that Jahi might be the representative of someone we associate with purity, and that we'll find Agia as, say, Messiana. I, I, I just don't have a good feeling about any of this. Okay, so let's stop right there, right? Where you're saying, okay, you, you think that she embodies the opposite of what she is. And Wolf, I don't think, ever works this way, right? Like, Jahi is not going to be a symbol of purity in there. Oh, I, oh, he, he, he definitely does. He definitely does. No, we have I a just, long conversation with uh, Dorcas. Death and innocence. Uh, yeah, yeah, death yeah, and yeah. innocence. Yeah, and but, she's but, death and he's innocent. Yes, yes, but that's obvious. She was dead. Right. So like that's that's obvious. But here, right, this temptress woman, that kind of act, there's a couple of characters that embody it. Right. There's Jolenta. Right. There's Aegea. There's anything that's sexually lascivious in that regard. But right. Really, the character that she's going to embody as far as agenda, when you realize what she's trying to do, it's going to be Jeterna and the Undines there. And she'll she'll make this overt a little bit later, what her mission is. And so when that comes up, it's Jeterna. That's who this is. But this character in the play, Jahi, is still going to play uh, some of the parts that are that are taken by, you know, Aegea in there, like the struggle between Aegea and Dorcas and between Jolenta and Dorcas. There's a little microcosmic view of those literal moments in there as well. So I think that she is Chaterna, but there are parts of her that reflect Aegea and Jolenta. Yeah, she's almost like the archetype that they're they're each taking at different points. And yes. it's sort of like what Jahi to me seems to do is take on this idea that okay this kind of seduction and sort of misuse of i mean at least in this context misuse of of reproductive power is something that's usually associated with deception and and with doing something else so jolinta does that Jeterna exactly. even does that. Yes. I mean, the whole, all the things so about all in a maternal way where the Undines can like hold you and protect you, but also with the, yeah. And giant, she tries giant to lure him sexually yeah. even into the water. Yeah, definitely kind of archetype. That may be one way to think about it, James. Okay. The, the, the story is more doing archetype work than. And and I agree though. There yeah. is parts of her that's a Gia for sure. Like that, that deception in there, like she wants something, but, but. Jolenta as well, right before this, what did she want? She wanted to bag the Autark. She's like, I never want to do this again. This is going to be my last play. I'm going to get the Autark, right? Yeah. Somehow, or one of those high functionaries. And the irony, of course, is that she actually is about to sleep with the Autark. Well, I think that there are, if I was going to pick, I, I, I think that there are more intersections with Igea than anybody else in this book, but I don't know what to do with it. 
But but when we learn her motivations, these are the motivations of Chaturna. That's what it tells us. It's actually letting us know what Chaturna wants later. That's why. And, and actually kind of works, too, because if you're thinking about, like, how different levels of the story, like, this is a great place to talk about archetypes and how this play presents them, because that works, that what the Undines and the Megatherians are kind of doing, at least with the Abaya and the Undine version, is trying to use sexuality as a way to turn humanity into something different and and yes. or at least something more of a vassal like you know like you're gonna get trapped once you do it it's, she's that's why she's also kind of a succubus too that mm-hmm. um you know once once you fall for that then you're stuck in in sort of being addicted to it so the fact that we can see that play out a little bit with kind of how you know why severian doesn't like jalenta and and why she's like I, this gets me so angry because it's it's selfish and it's deceptive well in this context, that's actually kind of a good thing because he's recognizing ultimately it's like getting prepared too for, yeah, I guess that's how the megatherians work too. You know, <laughs> like there's something about that too, because that's also going to be exactly the same kind of thing that it's a selfish kind of love. Whereas in order to have a humanity evolve, you need some kind of non selfish kind of sacrificial love, which Jahi and Jolenta and Aji and whatnot don't, don't have. So so I would maybe think about it instead of less like who is Jahi, it's better to think about it what like is what is Jahi and how often, how does she show up in all these different characters? Yes, kind of sort I of agree completely. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll see. We'll see. Why don't you, Craig, I think you should take Jahi because otherwise we're get, we're, we'll get very confused. Okay. About yeah, we don't, Meshia doesn't talk anyway. Okay. So yeah. Jahi says, now you see that he whom you have esteemed your divinity would countenance and advise all I have proposed of you. Before the new sun rises, let us make a new beginning. That is a mouthful. Uh, the Autark is talking about having affairs, and Jahi, the demon of lasciviousness, says, this guy who you consider to be your god agrees with me. So before the new sun rises, let us make a new beginning. Uh, what do we, any ideas about that? Yeah, yes, she's kind of saying, yeah. hey, yeah, the Autark, she's like, yeah, the Autark's got the right idea, which is, of course, the wrong idea. And she's like, and, let's, and, let's go with and that. she's like, hey, the Autark has been trying to move humanity forward. She's saying, yes, right? The successful mingling of old humanity with the sea powers or demonic forces, that's the way to go dally with me. He's right. Yeah, but they're not. That's she's the saying, let's make yeah. a new beginning. And the, and the yes. Megatherians definitely do not want to make a new beginning. They want to make themselves. an old beginning. But remember, it's a deception, right? She's saying, and she's the deceiver so she's gonna say this is the new beginning you wanted which is really just to stay as you are but work for us and and i i think it would still be new like you know those the, if humanity mingles with the nephilim or the megatherians it's still going to be new and different it's just not a hiero future yeah they get to be giants right like even yeah, that's even baldanders right he's yep. gonna be giant it is kind of a new trajectory yeah, for humanity new. but it's not the good capital n new and it might even be underwater yeah yeah, yeah. So the Autark says, here's a lovely creature. How is it, child, that I see the bright flames of candles reflected in each eye while your sister there still puffs cold tinder? Okay, one thing that's cool, we're, we're thinking about light here. We had sunbeams and, and mm-hmm. sort of supernatural light. Now we just have man-made light of candles, right, that's just reflected <laughs> in your eyes. So it's this, like, smaller kind of light, which is there. It's like, it's Well, it's okay, but Messiana, she like doesn't it. even have a light. She's still trying to puff oh, yeah, flames out. Yep, So and so Jahi says, she's, she's no sister of mine. 
And the Artarch says, your adversary then. So the Artarch says to Jahi, wow, your eyes are so bright, like little fires. And here your sister, Messiana, she can't even start a fire. Uh, so who said Jahi and, and Messiana were siblings? That's suspicious. But Jahi counters, she's no sister of mine, which implies maybe she has a sister. Or maybe implies, you know, she protests too much. The Autark counters, not your sister? Well, maybe your adversary. And these are, of course, not exclusive categories, Craig. Uh, you might not know that as an only child. <laughs> but again, you know, this relationship of parallels of Asia and Dorcas, but not really. Okay, wait. So... I think you, once again, you're trying to take this literally. We're saying, Hey, are you sisters? And you're trying to map like sisters onto the text here. But I think this is more philosophical. Like, Hey, you know what? Here's humanity. Here are the undines. Here are people like Idis under the sea that see themselves as a part of humanity as well. So they're saying, yeah, we can be sisters, but no, we're different, right? Like we don't want to be lumped into exactly the same thing. So I don't think necessarily that this is talking about like, textual, oh, Aegean and Dorcas are supposed to be sisters, or we're going to find a sister in the text there. It's more like, you know, humanity, who is related to humanity? How are they related to humanity? Do they see each other as enemies, or do they see each other as actual brothers and allies? And the autarch at this point, his his misunderstanding may be telling that like even even the powers of Earth, even supposedly the wisest or, or the most, you know, the leaders, that they're kind of in a situation where they don't necessarily know, right? They're, that they're, they just don't have the full wisdom or at least they're going to be tempted too much that they can't tell the difference between oh. between a human and a, and a, a dangerous undine or something like that. <laughs> Well, so the, the autarch says, um, what? Do you know who I am? Jahi says, I'm the only one here who does. You are a ghost and less, a column of ashes upheld by the wind. Boom. Okay, finally, something I recognize. The autarch is a ghost, a column of ashes held up by the wind. This is Malrubius. This is Malrubius. This is the way he's going to go out, like a like a column of ashes held up by the wind. And of course, if, if Malrubius is the autarch, it confirms, it confirms my belief that Malrubius is the first Severian. La da da da. Finally, something I understand. I, I don't think that you understand it. <laughs> I'm sorry, because I, I don't I don't think Malrubius is at all related to the first Severian. I, I think he's alive in this Severian's life. Uh, you know that I even kind of deny like that the first Severian is anything distinct or different from our Severian. But here, right, a column of ashes upheld by the wind. What is the future where humanity winks out? It is Master Ash's future. Right. Where all of a sudden, like humanity will kind of just freeze to death there and the new sun won't come. And so the autarch has that fate where his line is just going to disappear and wink out like Master Ash does. And what does he do? He just disappears like a ghost. Yeah. When he says column of ashes, that to me is immediate. Yeah. Master Ash. I mean, almost almost there's there's kind of literal. I mean, the same same word that it's it's that. And here ghost is more ghost is just as much about like, yeah, you you may be real, but you're not really substantial. You know, you're it's it's sort of more of a metaphorical ghost. Mm. Um, and it's so, hard for me to imagine a ghost so. not as a disembodied uh, spirit of someone who has died as no. 
the narrator of the short son. Right. But they're also saying this, you know, on a play stage where everything's a lie. So, so, you know, so <laughs> uh, everything a, is really a truth, Craig. It's a tr- everything's well, both. truth that's, with a capital that's, T. That's why it's literature and myth. Yeah. It's all, it's all literally false, but, but also in a higher literality true. So, but anyway, yeah. But I mean, that's where, um, I think that's what she means. Like you're a ghost and then, and less, so a column of ashes upheld by the wind. So, but also the fact that she knows who the autarch is, it's, it's that thing that, so Jahi is not just, you know, another player who seems confused by the story. She actually suggests here that, that she's part of something that actually does know what's at stake in different ways, um, just like Gabriel. So at a certain point that, that line right there, makes me see like Jahi is really more fighting with Gabriel for, the direction that all these people are going to go. And, and plus when the new sun comes, the autarch's reign is through. That's it. There's right. going to be nothing left. That's the end yeah. of the Commonwealth. That's the end of humanity. So that's why he's a ghost. The new sun is coming. He's going to fade like nothing. Oh, does the, the autarch's reign end? Because the very end is going to carry all those autarchs. Yeah, but he's just, a, he's like, he's like he's a last gonna... final part to, to memorialize all of them. Like he's like, we put everything in you so that you could just be like a little library book that nobody consults. It's forgotten. You won't have any real authority. Like, it's like one of those, uh, you know, like here, here's the great history of the Roman Empire, but it's gone. And the Ushus, the Ushus people don't have an autarch anymore. So, yeah, there's just, they have their cult, but they have the <laughs> cult of the four gods Sleep. or whatever. But yeah. Well, yeah. And, but they recognize that Severian is one of those gods when he arrives. But he's not the autarch. Not the autarch. He must he's be the, the autarch. He's, he's the the can't stop being the autarch. Wait, what is he actually? Is he the, what's, oh shoot, what do they call him? He's the sleeper. The, the sleeper. Uh, Oanus, yeah, the I think, or something like yeah. that. He's the, the, so, the no, he god. says, I am their Oanus. Oanus is yeah. another god. He's like, I'm like that Oanus to them. Well, anyway, the, the autarch says, I see she is mad. What does she want you to do, friend? And Meshia is relieved. Meshia says, you hold no resentment towards her? That's good of you. None at all. Why, a mad mistress should be a most interesting experience. I am looking forward to it. Believe me. And there are a few things to look forward to when you've seen and done all I have. She doesn't bite, does she? I mean, not hard. She does, and her fangs run with venom. So the autarch is still interested in her relationship with Jahi. As I said, I think, you know, the fangs must be like a serpent in the Garden Association. But if the autarch is God in the Eden story, as I kind of want to do, then what else can he be? Wolf is openly undermining that association by the autarch and not Messiana being beguiled by her. Well, I think that the autarch as the controller of humanity has something to do with this. Like he's the one who directed it before and and Meshia is going to basically direct it in the future. And so this is kind of like a fluid thing where he's the old humanity and yes, he's attracted to her, but you know what? Somebody has to see past her. These are very fluid things. Yeah, and it is it's interesting that this kind of this moment right here in one way or another sets up sort of the quote unquote plot of the play, right. Which is going to be like trying to capture Yahi and Meshian and then, and then the autark trying to find them and, and whatever craziness happens at the end. Um, so the, to me, what that makes me think is that, yeah, sort of the surface drama of what's going to happen is this sort of back and forth misunderstanding war slash seduction between humanity and the Megatherians which is again literally what's happening happening throughout in the background of you know the war in the north 
we find out, of course, that it's, you know, it's a weirder kind of war than going on. But, you know, so much of the story so far from the beginning, it seems like once you read it the first time, you don't have the whole cosmic backdrop quite yet. But you do know that there are these monsters or whatever they are who are trying to to work with humanity. And then there's a war going on in the north. So, you know, if you're looking for slightly more literal things to do, at least the fact that that the autark, you know, sets in motion having his guards go try and hunt her down so he can capture her and and you know whatever. That's kind of like the war. Yeah. But then then quickly um Jahi springs forward to try and claw Meshian and Meshian darts off stage and Jahi follows her. Yeah, and so the autark says I shall have my Pequeneros search the garden for them. Uh, Pequeneros are pikemen, according to Lexicon Earthus. Uh, the prominent use of pikemen in the first chapter of Shadow suggests to me the possibility that Jahi and Meshian are Thea and the body in the necropolis. But once again, I don't know what to do with that. Because yeah, they, I, the, the, the pikemen did, of course, search for both of those in the necropolis. So Meshia. Meshia says, don't worry, they'll both be back soon. You'll see. Now, that is very Severian-like. <laughs> it's possibly a nod to the audience. Uh, don't worry, the naked girls will return. Stick around. It's also kind of a, a weird moment, which is sort of funny, but also kind of suggests that most people don't really know what's going on. Like, most people assume, oh, you know, these creatures or these seductions or, you know, it's all women's work or it's all just about, mm -hmm. you know, smaller things. Um, but really it's, yeah, the fate of the world. Right. Meshia. Meanwhile, I am actually glad to have a moment alone with you like this. There's some things I've been wanting to ask you. Autark says, I grant no favors after six. That's a rule I've had to make to keep my sanity. I'm sure you understand. So if by granting no favors after six has meaning beyond equip, it's getting by me. He just gets off work then. He's like, I don't do any work after six. I'm done. I clocked out. Yeah. It, there's also, I mean, there's a couple jokes that could be yeah. going on. I mean, it may be a bit like, you know, God doesn't offer miracles anymore. That's, <laughs> that's could be part of it. And, but it also then undermines, like we know Meshia thinks he's God. And then the autark here is talking more about, yeah, you know, his day-to-day -day job because right. he's human. So Meshia says, Meshia, somewhat taken aback, says, that's good to know. But I wasn't going to ask for something, really, only for information, for divine wisdom. Well, in that case, go ahead. But I warn you, you must pay a price. I mean to have that demented angel for my own tonight. I, I guess, you know, that demented angel means Jahi and not Gabriel. But the reference to her being an angel is intriguing. Demons, again, are fallen angels. Oh, yeah. but he doesn't call her fallen, although I suppose, you know, her name suggests a fallen woman. So there's one thing I want to mention here, and it actually is kind of like a callback to what the Autarch was doing when Severian met him for real and recognized him. He was serving Vodalus, right, who serves Abaya. So let's stop and think about that. Like, even though he was just kind of faking it, he was pretending to be a servant of a servant of the Megatherians, even though he's their enemy. Um, so, you know, there's like this, as I've said before, there's this fluidity that's running through the Autarch's roles. And even here, right, the demented angel, it's like, yeah, she's kind of an angel, but at the same time, she's been perverted or demented just mm -hmm. a little bit. And I think this is related to Abaya, you know, what he wants, the, the undines and what they actually are and what they're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so yeah, it's, it's interesting though. It really is. 
that he wants to have that demented angel for his own. And I do think it's about Jahi that he's attracted to. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's true. They're even, I mean, even when Severian talks to the old Artark a couple of times, like there are a few of the things the old Artark says, um, you know, he's mostly obviously, yes, fighting a war against the Megatherians, but there are a couple of times where he's praises them and, or says something like, you know, like they, they would do this well, or they do, they are good at these one or two things. So, um, not that I think the old Autark was actually being seduced by a no. or Erebus, but still. So but anyway, yeah. So Meshia drops to his knees. There's something I've never understood. Why must I talk to you when you know my every thought? So Meshia moves into questions of theology here, but remember we have, undermined at every turn that the autark here is the increate. And I'm going to go down this line because I still think it works very, very well with my understanding of what's going on in the backstory for Severian. This suggests understanding that the autark as Malrubius and Malrubius is the first Severian are all the autark. And this, the autark knows Meshia's every thought because as Severian puts it in the final sense, they are the same person. And all this assumes that Wolf was not playing fair and is conflating our Severian, Messia's son, with the first Severian for some poetic reasons. Uh, too long, didn't read. He's not playing fair. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I just I just want to say here, you know, I, I, I don't often agree with your Malrubius assertions that he was the first Severian in any way. And I really don't see Messia's son as Severian either, you know? So I feel like this once again is just a joke like, Hey, why would God, if I'm conflating you with God need me to speak, if he can just read my thoughts really. Right. And so it's just that the divine will once again, working without a uh, speech. Yeah. But remember in Citadel of the Autark, Severian is going to get down and he's going to pray and he's going to have a vision that essentially in the end, has him praying to himself. Yes, yes. And and you know what? There's even going to be a line, like, I think it's later on about, you know, we're fiend and paraclete inhabiting us. So it's almost like they can be possessed, almost like the gods in Long Sun. And we know that if he's the new son, that that is conflated with the increate in these texts and the conciliator, that they're somehow homoousius or one in being, almost like Jesus is one in being with, with our, you know, uh, Judeo-Christian God. Yeah. And, you know, just speaking about Rubius, there is a way that let's let's imagine the autarch here is the archetype of a human leader who has some good qualities like like a god, but but ultimately is not. There is a way that Malrubius functions kind of like that for Severian, um, specifically because he's kind of a he's a false ghost. Like, you know, as the Aquaster that he is, he's kind of a messenger to Severian from the uh from heaven uh, from from the from, afterlife yeah, from, from Yassad from the heaven yeah he's he's working like that but it also you know leads to some problems because he's he's only got this sort of bodily form or or yeah I mean a human-ish form um and he's he's got the personality of Mount Rubius but he's not really Mount Rubius you know well, isn't that a so ghost there's there's Mount something Rubius is dead yeah. and his yeah. but again well, and that's another place where too it's the same thing like you can say yeah he's a ghost but okay what a ghost as a quaster means is something totally different uh-huh. than you know the spirit of a, a dead well, you know what, though? Around. There's there's a line in Earth of the New Sun where Severian is raised as an Eidolon, and he says, hey, if you write 
a name over where it was. Is it one signature or two? So there's a sense that maybe they actually are the spirit and that wherever the body is, the spirit kind of just plugs into it again. You know, uh, that it's like transcends time and it just plugs into here's a here's a Severian shaped hole in the universe. I got to plug into because it's an Eidolon now. So I'm Severian soul again. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Yeah, That's getting into I have all kinds of questions about. Yeah. Wolf's theology and how (laughs) that works. Not just not because that kind of thing happens in a lot of the stories, too. Yes. I'm just that's where it gets into just confusing. That's theology stuff I don't know as well. Anyway. But yeah. So um Back to Meshia. So Meshia. So yeah, he's he's got, I love that he asks this kind of question, which I've known other kids think about. Like, why do I have to pray when you can just read my mind? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's Meshia's first question and he keeps going and he says, or wait, no, that's, that's not his first question. That's his first complaint, first of all, <laughs> just sort of things. <laughs> then he says, my first question was, knowing her to be of that brood you have banished, should I not still do what she pr- proposes? For she knows I know, and it is in my heart to believe that she puts forward right action in the thought that I will spurn it because it comes from her. <laughs> okay, let's this is that- This is very weird. Like, yeah. we've gone from things to very sort of technical she knows moral. That I know that she knows that. Yeah. yeah. So let's assume that Jahi is, is Ajia, that brood you banished, which suggests that maybe she's in league with the Megatherians. This isn't a crazy idea. Many people have argued that this is the reason that she's, you know, allied with any uh, new sun cult that Severian is going to encounter uh, north of Thrax. And also, Agilus went by the alias Cadro of the Seventeen Stones. And as you already know, I've I've been maintaining that it's not Agia, but Chaterna here, the brood that's been banished under the sea. Yeah, well, you know, there's a lot of mix and matching in a wolf story. But this passage also suggests that there's a huge degree of manipulation on Ajia's part, assuming that Jahi is to be equated with Ajia here, that she is deliberately positioning herself as Severian's enemy in order to get him to act against her interests as he understands them in order to get him to do what she actually wants, which would be for her true interests. Again, I don't. I don't know what to do with this passage. Well, I do know what to do with it. You remember my old saying that, hey, eventually all evil will serve good. So sometimes even when you're doing something that somebody evil wants you to do, you're still doing the greater good because eventually it will serve the will of God. And that's all this is, right? She knows I know. It's in my heart to believe she puts forward right action in the thought that I will spurn it because it comes from her. Good comes from an evil source. That's it. But, you know, I was thinking... The same thing, Mark, that that especially, I mean, you and I have talked before about how Earth of the New Sun is kind of like all about that point. Yeah, like it's, it is. it's a whole big theodicy apology for that point. So you get it here. And it sounds, it's again, cool and sort of the, the weird tongue in cheek tone of this play, because it sounds like it's all of a sudden really like abstruse moral reasoning for a second. But there is that that point. And so it's really kind of cool that it's Meshia who offers the idea because usually I would think it's it would be like the a prophet or someone who would come and explain that but here you got just this guy who's like you know I know she wants to hurt me but I feel like there might be something about it that is useful um and then even even if she's doing the um like he's basically saying she's using reverse psychology on me or something <laughs> yeah. like that I shouldn't do it um but so then to think about what the undines want there's there's a question there like is how far does that sort of point that evil turns to good 
go? Does that mean that Severian should go hang out with Abaya and use that? Like there is the whole possibility that Severian, I mean, it's like using the one ring, but for good, right? Can, can we go take all the bad stuff and turn it and, you know, become something good that but that also seems more like baldander's route where he's like let's actually take all this stuff on ourselves and make ourselves become you know whatever greater bigger. well severian actually addresses this directly in earth of the new sun when he says you know what we can't know what the results of our actions are but mm -hmm. we can judge our intentions and we can act with good meaning and so like he makes it clear that that's important as well you know that our that our our intention does matter yeah so is there more to the brood that you've banished? I mean, is that just kind of a, a large sort of reference to, oh, she's one of the Megatherians? Well, or? it could be like the offspring of Cain, you know, like whatever it is. That, That's what I was going to wonder, too. Yeah. Like, is there a specifically biblical thing that... I think there's a tradition that he mated with the Nephilim, actually, that is... Because that's what Nod says, right? Cain's... Cain will mate with my daughters, yeah. more or less. So, like, yeah. I think it's pretty clear in the play even who that is. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's Nod. So, and in this Nod is being, because he goes to the land of Nod, right? Yeah. And so Nod is being associated with Megatherians. Uh, I mean, the brood that you banished, if you went to Greek myth, then it's the, the hundred-armed, uh, hundred-bodied creatures that Kronos banished to the underworld. Jahi's, Jahi's going to make this easy for us later. She's going to basically say, I'm bigger than all of you in reality. Mm -hmm. She's going to yeah. say she's Juturna. She is Juturna. So that's the Undines or the Brood banished. Okay. So the Autarch, you know, sort of voce aside to the audience after hearing Meshia's, if she knows that I know, blah, 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 you know, the, the twisted logic, he says, uh, he's mad too, I see. And because of my yellow robes, he thinks me divine. And so the odd Tark here emphatically asserts that he's not the increate in the mm -hmm. story, right? Yeah. But he doesn't mind continuing to go with that deception, yeah. right? So, right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and he says to, to Messia, a little adultery never hurt any man. So he <laughs> said, should I, should I give in to that? Or does she know that I wanted to? So she's trying to trick me into not doing it. And he says, he just cuts to the chase and says, ah, a little adultery never hurt any man. And so, you know, he just sums up what Jahi wants as sex with Messia. And I don't know if there's a correct interpretation that would take this as metaphorical or literal. I think so. both. Both. Yeah, yeah. Plus, it's just funny. Also, also <laughs> yeah. here, real quickly, his yellow robes. Um, you know, I don't know if there's a tradition about that divinity in yellow, but I do think that it's here talking about the color of the sun as well. Like his robes are yellow, and so like you know, the mm -hmm. increate being associated with the sunbeam and the yellow of that. Yeah. Well, in the Commonwealth culture, yellow robes are associated with authority. So, yeah. But because of the new sun or not, that's a question. Yeah, I like it. Oh, we didn't even finish the joke yet. You got to say the whole joke. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, a little adultery never hurt any man, unless, of course, it was his wife's. <laughs> I read that to Amberly. <laughs> she wasn't so sure about it. So. But then he says, then mine would hurt her? Uh, so, yeah. So Meshia is, is interpreted here, he, leaving us to guess where this conversation is going. It's... It's interesting that he seems to be surprised that his adultery would hurt Messiana. And there's, of course, a parallel to Jalenta event that occurred just before this play started. Here it's sort of presented as adultery and cheating. But if we go back to how we were talking before about different 
modes of reproduction, then something about mating with Jahi is it's cheating, but it's it's doing something that will affect everybody else. Like is is kind of how I'm saying. Like if he yes. does do with her, then Meshian and Meshian and the offspring she could have, then those are hurt. Yeah, exactly. That's where I was going to go with that too. Like it tells us what the struggle is. What will man become? If he goes with Jahi, it's going to hurt the offspring of Meshian. But if he goes with Meshian, right, he's made a choice about what humanity is going to be. Yeah. Okay. Hold on, everybody. Let's just, let's just stop this right here because uh, we've gone, we've talked a lot and uh, Craig's going to have to get this edited and we kind of have some an act change, at least a scene change, because we've got sort of, new characters well, I mean, popping up still, here in a second. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter where we cut this off. This doesn't. I'm not going to be happier. anywhere else. So, um, and we should say thanks to Mark too, real quick, because he's doing this very late in his time zone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's, that's a pleasure. Very, very generous. And yeah, uh, very, I'd love to, you know, finish out the whole play someday here with you guys. One day. One day. One day. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. So, once again, here we are in the middle of a plague. Here I am, lost, having to contend with these endless metaphorical interpretations. Rapacious hawk Which is fine. Which is fine. Which is fine. I'm, not, I'm, I'm only whining a little bit. So if you've got more <laughs> metaphoric interpretations, I feel like we're, we're just doing augury here. We're just basically, uh, you know, putting together explanations based on the shapes of the flights of birds. But this is what the man left us. So, um, you know, I'm, I appreciate uh, Mark and, uh, and and Craig coming to play ball here because otherwise I'd be just going through this and saying, I don't know. I'm actually so, having fun. I'm feeling for the first time more confident. This is how to, I feel. This is how the, uh, now you see why I do it. <laughs> so, <laughs> No, I feel I feel good about the play. I Meanwhile, think. I'm I'm playing the role of of Craig here, and it's uh, gosh, it sucks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, if you have anything to uh, to say about this, you, you know, you can bring it to us on the Facebook group, on the Reddit, the Instagram, on the Patreon page by email, and you can find out how to do all that on the uh, show notes. Leave a Apple Podcast Review and tell how wonderfully confusing these episodes are. Or, you know, tell your wolf-reading friends. And until you hear from us next, may the Moira favor you.
had to hack up a spleen. No worries. So. Now, the problem with this machine is that if I bump it the wrong way, the screen will just go black and it'll turn off. So I can't touch it. No, well, don't <laughs> touch it. You've got no reason to touch it. Exactly. Just to stroll along the word. Yeah. It, well, what happens is it since the way this works is it's actually recording it on your machine. So when we can't hear each other, it's still recording what you say onto your own computer. So once I get the files, then um, all the things that like mm -hmm. when you would talk and couldn't hear you or when we would talk and you couldn't hear us, I can I hear all three. So. Oh, my gosh. So you heard me going like mother son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Should I not still do what she should? She should I not do? Should I not still do what she proposes? Well, you were only born just now. Yesterday, I think. Wait, hold on. I don't know if you're. There. So yeah, he basically says. Hold on, hold on, don't, don't, don't. You'll, I'll lose my my throat, train of thought, and I'll be hit. Go for it. I'll never get yeah, back we've, to it. We've had Actually, kind of no, skip it. We'll <laughs> okay, okay. A, we can a, come back to it. <laughs> and then James will have other. You guys ideas. are much more glib than me. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to cut some of this out because we've already, already we've already beat that one to death. Hold Meshian. on, Meshian. Sorry, Meshian. Oh, Meshian. Oh, it's me. Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, he's on well, record. No, he, thing, yeah, know? when he so, writes, he's like he's kind of a contrarian, really. I mean, he's yeah. gonna he's gonna yeah. he's going to give some of the best speeches to the people he disagrees most with. Look what he did with Thecla. Um, yep, and they, they find a good way to lead into that. Yeah, do you know who I am? You're Where John Heaton, Craig. I know. I'm. I just lost my spot because oh, wow. I I was looking something else up <laughs> and I forgot. So yeah, he skipped. Uh, la, la, right. la 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 la. He went to the bottom, top of page five. Yeah, yeah see how the editing is. The editing on this one won't be bad, but that last. No, one this will be. This, well, the we'll last. Put out, we'll put them out as fast yeah. as you can get them to ready, and I can get them. Ready, okay. So. Cool. cool. Sounds good. Exciting. She's organized and productive, and oh. I'm interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and we should say Mark made this point. Or, oh, shoot. Did Mark make Mark, this point? Mark makes this point. I couldn't remember is... if that happens in the episode that I'm editing or in the one that we just recorded. <laughs> okay. Well, 